Welcome to House of Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from this past Sunday. For more information about other messages or events at House of Hope, visit www.ihope.today. Some of you may have heard it. It's from the uh, uh, it's from uh, Ezekiel, and it is the um, passage in which uh, there's water coming from the temple. And I and I always thought, boy, you know, if you're going to have a vision of a temple, I don't think water coming from the altar is a good thing. Um, and yet he just kind of excuse the pun. But he went with the flow. And uh, so that's kind of what we're going to do today. Um, so uh, if you need to know where Ezekiel is, you kind of you look for Isaiah and, and uh, Lamentations. You keep kind of going back and you'll find Ezekiel in there. And uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, while you're looking for that, uh, you can use the table of contents. It's okay. I have, I have to. Um, so... The other thing is, is that, have any of you, and, and I'm looking at those of you who are like myself with a little bit of gray hair there, um, have you heard the, the expression, it's all wet? So the idea, you had this idea, but it's all wet. Have you heard that idea? Have you heard that phrase before? All washed up? Okay, so uh, there was a phrase, I guess I'm going back a little further because I, my dad picked up a lot of phrases from his dad, who used to teach up north in Ontario, and one of his things that he would say is, oh, that idea, oh, it's all wet. And uh, I'm kind of wanting to change that, because um, you know how uh, younger kids today, they'll say something, oh, man, that's sick. And I'm like, sick. So if my sermon's going to be sick today, it may not be exactly the way the teens are thinking of it, being sick. But, you know, trying to be encouraging and of, of good hope, I'm going to say with hope that my sermon's going to be sick today. Either that, or to use my dad's impression, it's going to be all wet. Anyway, uh, but I want to change that because Ezekiel is all wet in the passage that we're going to read today. So, you turn to chapter... 47 of Ezekiel, and uh, now I could read the whole thing here, but um, I'm going to just read part of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So um, we'll start at verse 1. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. So that way, if you were standing at the altar and looking out, 
it would be on the right-hand side of the altar. So uh, for me, that is what we would call stage right. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me all around the outside. Now just imagine that this is this is quite far. We're talking uh, almost half a kilometer around to the other side. So it's it, th this is a bit of a hike. But anyway, he goes around and he gets to that outer east gate and there he sees the water trickling out from the south side. As the man went eastern, eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, which is about a third of a mile or about 500 meters, 530 meters, something like that. Uh, 1,750 feet, something like that. Richard's already correcting the math in his head. That's okay. And <laughs> he then, he then uh, led me, what's that? Yeah, no kidding. I, I, of course, I had to get the one that's all full of math. I'm a musician. I count to four and I start over. Anyway, and he, he led me through the water and that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits, so another third of a mile, and led me through water that was knee deep. And then he me measured off another thousand cubits, or another third of a mile, uh, and led me through water that was up to my waist. And then he measured off another thousand cubits, or another third of a mile. But now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. <clears throat> so, this passage is one that, that has always intrigued me, because as I was saying, um, I don't know, other than in Revelation, I don't know that we have any other description of a temple, Solomon's temple, or any of these other temples in the Bible that actually has a river that comes from it. And in the book of Revelation, it's actually from the throne of God. So again, as far as I know, uh, this is the only temple that has a river coming out of it. Um, what's interesting, what's unique about this, is that this is a river that has no, uh, what you would call, feeding tributaries to it. Um, a lot of rivers that, as they get bigger, it makes sense because more water is coming in, and so eventually it gets big, and then it heads out to the ocean. The other way that rivers get big is they actually they start big, and then they'll get small. But this one starts small and just gets bigger and bigger, but not because of the amount of water that's getting into it. If you notice, it's getting deeper and wider and broader, but there's no water that's being added to the volume to make it do that. A river might spread out because it's getting shallower and shallower and so it just spreads out. I mean, if you're ever flying over the prairies, you'll notice, you know, lakes and rivers and they're meandering all over the place because they're going over such flat ground and that makes them to spread out. Or you might see wetlands or a delta or something that spreads out because the volume of water has been added to it and added to it. But this one, is unique because it's getting deeper and broader, but there's no extra water coming into it. So that kind of makes it unique. The other thing that's unique about it is that it is started 
at a place where there shouldn't be any water. It's starting out in this desert or, or uh, this place that is a, um, it, has, it has no water source that we can think of other than the fact that it has to be of God. So this is kind of the starting place that I want us to uh, consider as we're looking at this passage. So the fact that it starts at an altar got me thinking about these significant sections as they go. So there's the, the ankle deep, and then knee deep, and then waist deep, and then laying over your head. Um, so what is the significance of that? Well, there's several ways one can look at it, and I do confess that, you, you know, you can take uh, the pastor out of the liturgy, but it's hard to take the liturgy out of the pastor. Uh, sorry. No, um, what I'm getting at is that I'm used to preaching in certain churches where uh, there is an expectation where you compare this to um, how, it, how it fits in with the, the liturgy of the day or or what have you, um, or your, you know, your, your dogma, all that kind of thing. So I'm kind of freestyling here today, and that uh, makes it a little unique for me. But in doing so, I couldn't help but I, I couldn't resist the urge. So I went and looked up where there were instances in which, in the Bible, we talk about ankles, or knees, or torsos, or when you're in over your head, because I, I didn't quite understand what the significance was. So one of the things that I looked at was the priestly garments that the priests would have wore in the temple, and uh, the significance of that as we explore this water coming from the temple. Now, before you, your eyes glaze over, you go, oh, really, did I come here today just to hear this? There were uh, other things that we could have looked at. One way is to look at the water as the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, enveloping you as you head out from the temple, out into the world, and as you go deeper and deeper, you are then more surrounded with the Holy Spirit, and so therefore you're more equipped to do ministry. There's all kinds of ways that one could look at this. But the reason why I looked at this in a different way was, uh, well, A, I didn't actually see any other commentaries that did this. Um, so maybe that's a dangerous thing. But uh, it really hit upon my heart that one of the things that made it clear for me that there was some significance to these things is that it was all about this man being taken on this journey, and I realize that this journey is a journey that each of us can take. If you think of yourselves as part of the royal priesthood of believers, if you think of the fact that God has a unique gift for you to use with others, a unique gift that you only can share with the people around you, as I would say, in your sphere of influence. So, what is your sphere of influence? Maybe it's work. Maybe it's, you know, at home. Maybe it's with your neighbors. Wh whatever your sphere of influence is, God has a unique gift given for you. And so God takes this man on this journey 
of faith. And what's unique about it is it's going away from the temple. It's not going toward the temple. We often think of those songs where it talks about entering the Holy of Holies, right? Um, okay, yeah, maybe that's an 80s worship song, so I'm a little behind on the things. But anyway, <laughs> you're entering the Holy of Holies. And the whole idea was that you were to come into the temple. And there's, of course, a vision of, of uh, uh-oh, now I'm catching myself. Um, I think it's Jeremiah where he sees just the foot of God. Was that Isaiah? Oh, boy. Oh, no. Well, somebody will correct me later. Anyway, um, so, anyway, this whole idea of coming into God's temple. And, in fact, the book of Revelation talks about it, coming into the city of God or the, the temple. Where you see the throne of God, and the, the, the new city of Jerusalem is, in a sense, like the temple. And yet, this vision takes us away from it. So, again, I got thinking about how much this is talking about our journey. It, this, if one goes with all the way they date scriptures and all that kind of thing, uh, this is supposed to be in the 25th year of the uh, Israelites being exiled in Babylon. So there are people in Babylon now who are Israelites, but have no living memory of what it was meant to be out in the, in the temple area, or to be uh, a part of Jewish tradition on site, as it were. So these words of Ezekiel suit us very well as well, I think, because we too as it were, are in exile. There is some day when we are going to come home to the temple. But right now, the temple isn't here, other than that we are God's temple. So to me, this, this was, it, it started to make sense to me. And of course, I'm saying that, praying and hoping that it's going to make sense to you as well. Um, so anyway, it starts off with the fact that you're at the altar and you're looking east out towards the beautiful rising sun, but you see the Shekinah glory of the Lord coming. And what makes you realize that it's something more than a sunrise, hitting all the gold of the altar and the, and the room all around, is that it's reflecting off, oh dear, dear, water at the altar. Oh, that can't be good. <laughs> and yet, the vision is, that the man is taken into this water, which starts actually just as a trickle. And any of you remember as kids, did you ever play with water? You know, the water out in the ditch or, or out in the woods, and, and you, you follow a little stream and you and you switch it around so it's closer. Away. I can just see the priest at the temple going, oh my word. And I know that this is just a, a vision that Ezekiel's having, but you know, uh, people talk to their hallucinations all the time. Um, <laughs> I see it in the movies. I've, I've never personally had experience with that. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll be quiet. Um, so anyway, but you, you can just envision these priests, you know, seeing this little stream meandering and going, oh, what, okay, well, we better put some towels over here so it goes over here. Anyway, they're following it. And so the, for the first thousand cubits, they're following this water that is only ankle deep. Now, I have a, a little stat here that I have to read to you because I, 
I couldn't memorize it really, but um, anyway, ankles. There's a, an interesting little tidbit here that if if you injure your ankle, you can you can actually not walk sometimes for up to six months. Your ankles take a long time to heal, more than other parts of your body. And I don't know about you, but if, if any of you have arthritis or anything like that, when your feet are not comfortable, the rest of you isn't uncomfortable. This idea of being at the altar, the healing starts, <laughs> as it were, right where you feel it most. And God's already starting to heal you and make you feel better. There's another interesting uh, passage as I was exploring this. You'll remember that Jesus um, was with his disciples. And they were in a room. And this lady came and anointed him with oil. And she washed his feet with her hair and her tears. There was another instance where Jesus and the disciples were gathered in an upper room, and Jesus washed his disciples' feet. All that dirt, all that grime. You know, when, when after Jesus had died, there's a couple of things that I, I remember, um, or that I think I would remember. I guess that's the best way to put it that I think I would remember if I was one of the disciples when Jesus died was that it would be two things. One is the scent of alabaster. The, the, or, or of the, um, not the alabaster jar, but what was in the nard. The nard that was in the alabaster jar. There is um, archaeological evidence. The fact that nard is one of the perfumes that last the longest. They found them in the tombs in Egypt, and little little vials of nard, and nard is still considered one of the most valuable perfumes. You can, if you if you look up authentic nard, there's all kinds of different kinds of nard, but if you look up the authentic nard, a little vial like this is still thousands of dollars, because it comes from a certain leaf from a certain mountain, and, and or blossom, and it's and it's really hard to get a hold of. And uh, it will last centuries. They opened up these vials, and the scent of the nard was still there. So when the disciples were gathered as Jesus had died, they would be smelling that nard, I'm sure, because it, it filled the room wherever he went for the three days prior to his death. Wherever he was, that scent of nard was there. And the other thing that I think they would remember is as they were looking at their feet, they would remember that Jesus had washed them. That all the places they had walked together. So here we are at the temple again, and Ezekiel starts, or the vision starts, at our ankles. Think of all the places that you have journeyed. Think of all the things that you have done. Some of that dirt you want to wash off your feet. But one of the things that needs to happen is that soothing healing of just waiting 
and letting God fill you. And that begins to fill your whole body. Then you move on and another thousand cubits or another third of a mile. And now the water is up to your knees. When I, uh, at one point, I, I used to work in security. And when I was working in security, uh, I know there's others who have, have done the same thing. But when I was working in security, I was working at some group homes uh, and some facilities where, where people could get quite violent and stuff. And uh, for our night uh, night patrols, we had to, we were trained to keep the flashlight up by our head so that when you open the door, the light gets right in the person's eyes and calms them right down. But if something were to really happen, we had, we had things that we could do, uh, but if that still didn't work, the thing that we were taught to do was to take your flashlight and swing it down and swipe the light. And in fact, that's why we were told that security flashlights were quite long, is that they could be used as a baton. And the main thing that you were to do with a baton, your, your flashlight isn't up here so you can hit the guy on the head because you, your arm can't move that way. You'd, you'd be too slow. But if you use the weight of the flashlight and bring it down, you can swipe up the guy's leg quicker than anything. And you'll notice, as an action movie fan, that you'll notice that almost all the times when you see the fights going on, one of the first things that happens is somebody swipes the other guy's leg. And as soon as that happens, you know they've got the upper hand and things go on from there. Not that I'm training you about self-defense. <laughs> but, good, there you go. If you remember anything from this, you'll remember that part. But anyway, swipe the leg, that's right. So anyway, uh, Jesus, or God, swipes our leg. And we kneel down in prayer. And so suddenly we're at the point, I don't know if you've ever waited in streams or whatever, but if you, you're up to your knees, suddenly you feel the current. Suddenly you realize, oh, I don't feel quite as sturdy as I did before. When it's up to your knees, you can't move as well. And you know one of the first things you realize? And this is a funny thing, but next time you go waiting and you're up to your knees, one of the first things you realize, and you don't even realize you, you're thinking it, the first thing you realize is, I can't run anymore. And that's important for God to help us to realize. We can't run anymore. You know, when you were close at God's temple and, and, and everything was so beautiful and everything, you didn't want to run. But now you're, you're further away. You're more than half a mile away. And suddenly you realize, well, what if I get scared? What if something happens? Suddenly you're already, without even realizing it, you're already dependent on God. You can't run. You can't escape. And you're dependent upon Him. So, now, I'm sure some of you are asking, now, where on earth did you find knees in the Bible? Well, there was a couple of things. And I have to admit, I had to do a bit of hand-waving to get there. But, one of the things was in the priestly garments, talked about the hem of the ephod. So there was this ephod, which is essentially an apron. 
Because if you think about it, at the altar, there's a lot of work to be done, and it's not always the best kind of work to be doing. But you got to make it all look nice and pretty. So one of the things they talk about is that the hem of the ephod, there are pomegranates and bells on the hem. Guess where the hem is? It's at the knee. The hem of the ephod is at the knee, and the, the bells and the pomegranates were rattles and bells. Bells and rattles. And they were on the ephod so that when, once a year, the holy, uh, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, they tie a rope around him. And that way, they hear him walking around back there, and they know he's alive. Because if he's going to come before the Lord, far as they know, you come before the Lord, you're dead. So the, the bells and the pomegranates are there for other people to know that you're alive. So one of the things I got thinking about is that when we're uh, getting moved by the Holy Spirit, and suddenly you realize you're in one of those positions where God has put you where you can't run. You can't get away. Of course, this has never happened to any of you. You never feel like God has put you in a position where you can't run. Right? So, suddenly, it's all beginning to make sense. This is where your witness to others becomes important. You know, when stuff happens in life, people turn to all kinds of things. People turn to drink. People turn to, I don't know, whatever it is. But when stuff happens to us, when we get into those positions where we can't run away, what do people see? What are our bells and pomegranates that let people see and hear what our response is to the situation that God has put us in? Because, of course, we can all say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. Um, Actually, often the devil doesn't make us do anything. We get into these situations ourselves. But sometimes God leads you into those situations. Think of Jesus being led into the wilderness. I mean, there are times when God leads us into things. What is your witness? What is your testimony? What are the bells? What rings the bell for other people from you? From what God is doing in your life, what are the bells? What are the rattles? What are the, what are the moments of showing people that you are alive in God? So then, the verse moves on, and we move another thousand cubits, another third of a mile, and suddenly we're up to our waist. Now, that was a tricky one because it says waist, but you could translate it kind of somewhere on the torso. Okay? And uh, it made it easier to look that up. Um, so we're going with torso. But it, it is waist. But uh, there's a couple of interesting things. And one is the 
the, 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 the people who studied the law, uh, they have something like 642 different laws in order to help them keep the, the Sabbath. And some of them are absolutely ridiculous. Here's an example. So this is, this is a genuine, here's a, a, a law, one of the 642 laws that allows you to keep the Sabbath. So, if you have to tie a rope to a bucket to send it down into the well, that's work. So you can't do that on the Sabbath. But you desperately need water. You know, you gotta wash your robes or whatever the case may be. So, a woman is allowed to tie a knot on her undergarment. I kid you not. It is not work for a woman to tie a knot on her undergarment. Specifically, her girdle. I don't know if they had girdles back in Bible times, but hey, there you go. Orthodox Jews today, there's 642 laws, this is one of them. Not against the law, the Sabbath, for a woman to tie a knot on her girdle. So, now get this. You thought it was crazy? It gets crazier. It's not illegal then for a woman to tie a knot on her girdle and to tie that knot to the rope that allows the rope to be tied to the bucket to go down into the well. Therefore, it is essential for women to haul the water out of the well on the Sabbath. And I seriously think that that was just a bunch of men really thinking hard. How can we get the women to do this? Did I offend any Jews in our midst? I hope not. Anyway, I, had, I read that. I, I, I literally burst out laughing because I could not believe it. I mean, really. Really, really. I had to read it twice, actually three times, to make sure I, but there you go. So it is not illegal for a woman to tie a knot to a girdle onto the rope that allows the water to be pulled up from the, from the well. Wow. These crazy laws are there. But let's, let's go with something a little more reasonable. So it made me think, though, about the woman at the well who comes to get water from the well and Jesus is sitting there. And it got me thinking, A, did Jesus see her talking? No. Anyway, uh, no. It, but the other thing it got me to wondering, though, is that what's What's interesting is on the priestly garments, they had these stones, and on the stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the idea was, was that those names were exhibited, obviously, you know, the priest can't look down and figure out all these, the names are there for when you see the priest, you see those names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's close to your heart. It represents the affection, the love of God. And the woman at the well, I don't know about you, but she received the love of God at the, at the well. And so here you are, up to your waist, up to your torso. You think about the full armor 
of God, the breastplate of righteousness. All these things talk about God's love being close to our heart. So that moment when you're feeling really insecure, because now the water's up past your knees, up to your chest, up to your waist, and suddenly you're quite insecure, God is sharing his love for you so that you know you are loved. And that becomes even more important than the witness that you had just a while ago when the water was up to your knees. Because once you witness to people, you feel vulnerable. As you progress in your journey of life, the more that you have received the healing, the more you are feeling vulnerable. And yet the more that God is working in you. It's, it's interesting that the more that God does for you, the more he puts you at risk. That's interesting. And so we move into the next thousand cubits, the next third of a mile. Suddenly, you're in over your head. You can't wait across it. You have to swim. And I believe, as I, I did my exegetical exercises correctly, um, that there are times in which swimming is mentioned in the Bible. But this is the only one that doesn't have to do with death and dying of either animals or people. This is the one time where we get to swim with God. Wow. Now, isn't that awesome? But there, of course, is a bit of a catch. You're not skinny dipping. You're not tubing. You're swimming in your priestly garment. Now, I don't know if you've ever fallen in the water with clothes on, but it's scary. And there you are, weighted down. If, if you ever look in Exodus 28 and look at the, the priestly garments, they are heavy. They are solid. And if you were to try and go swimming in them, you'd sink like a rock. And literally, there are rocks on that, on those priestly robes. There's 12 for the tribes of Israel, and there's two great big slabs on your shoulders, or sometimes described as cubes. Anyway, big rocks. And there's gold. And of course, gold doesn't weigh much when it's just a little bit, right? But it's huge, and it's heavy, and it's scary. It's heavy. So, just imagine... Um, there is a, a verse, I think it's Psalm 129, where uh, it mentions the fact that you are to be with God, immersed in his love, and you are, um, as you are immersed in God, you, you aren't, you don't sink, you don't, I forget how it goes. And of course, again, I'm caught with quoting something that I didn't write down originally. Psalm 129. This one I probably should look up because otherwise I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Let's see. 
give back to you, Father. I won't see it here. Maybe this time I can't remember. As you can tell, I'm doing this from memory. <laughs> yeah, Psalm 29. so now it doesn't stick in my head. Anyway, the idea here, though, is that when you're in over your head, when you're feeling overwhelmed, this is the time when you feel like you're, what do we say, you're out of your depth, a time when you're, when you're absolutely overwhelmed. This is the time that God has you completely surrounded, and he's got you. And it's also the time when you are able to share with others. You know, in the priestly garments and uh, also in the armor of God, the helmet, the helmet of truth, you have uh, in the priestly garments the, the mitre. And what's interesting is, unlike the Pope's mitre, the, 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 the Pope's mitre was to tell everybody, I'm, you know, Christ in persona. I am I am the person of Christ. Uh, you know, my word is infallible, all that kind of stuff. But in the in the in uh, Exodus 28, in the priestly garments, the mitre is that you are sharing with others that you are representing their holiness. Their holiness. So when you are out of your depth, when you are in over your head. You are representing the holiness, not only that is within you, that God has slowly engendered to you and given to you, instilled within you. This is what you share with others. It's a powerful moment where you are totally immersed in God, and yet you are representing the holiness that God has given you, but also the holiness of all those people in your care. No pressure. I want to conclude with a verse that I, I hope is going to sum this all up. Um, I hadn't really given the Passion Translation uh, much credit for a variety of reasons. But I want to share with you from Colossians 2, chapter 10. Or, sorry, chapter 2, verse 10. Good thing I'm not teaching you. Oh, great. Okay, so Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. And this is out of the Passion Translation. And our completeness, completeness is now found in Him. We are completely filled with God as Christ's fullness overflows within us. He is the head, or the source of every kingdom and authority 
in the universe. This is what the journey is that Ezekiel takes us on. He is the source, but he fills us to completeness. When I, when I was first reading this passage, I thought, oh, I'm a scuba diver. This is so cool to think about uh, the idea of a scuba diving with God, you know. And then I realized, wait a second. No, not at all. We're swimming. We're in over our head. Because if I was to wear the scuba gear and everything, suddenly, and I know that's a vision you can't get out of your head. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're swimming with God, you are totally vulnerable. You are, your life is at risk. You don't have the, the breathing apparatus. You don't have all this stuff. You've let all that stuff go. You've let out the control to God. He even has, at this point, what I would call, you've released full navigational rights to God. You'll notice the passage goes on to say that uh, he went back towards the shore. He was taken, I believe is the word, he was taken back to the, or led towards the shore. God had control that whole time. When we are out of control, when we are feeling like nothing is going right, we have no idea what's going on, remember that God is in control. I had a, I had a moment of insight when I was looking at, uh, I can't remember his name, I think it's Bill something, uh, from the, uh, the church down in Reading. I was listening to one of his sermons. Bill Witt? I, yeah. There was, there was another Bill with a, a W as last name. Wes, Wesley? I don't know. Anyway, maybe it was Bill Witt. Anyway, when he was, he was an older guy. Is that Bill Johnson? Okay. So, <clears throat> when he was speaking, this one sermon, he said, there was a sermon that was totally unrelated to, to Ezekiel, but I, I just, I confess, I just went with the, you know, there was a list of them, and, and I went with the first one I saw. And what was interesting was that buried halfway through the sermon was this powerful word, which was that the measure of authority spiritually that you have is in direct proportion to the depth of your worship. And that meant a lot to me in looking at this passage because as you are heading out in this journey with God, as you're led along this, this river that starts at your ankles and moves deeper and deeper, you are still in worship. And in fact, the further you leave from what you consider your temple, your, your, your place where God dwells, so the times when you're way out of control and feeling you're in over your head or out of your depth, when you are worshiping in that spot, that is when you have the strongest spiritual authority. And I remember for many years as a pastor, I would preach that, you know, if you have problems or whatever, uh, you should be coming to church. And the first thing that often happens, and I will confess that when stuff started to happen in my life two years ago, is the very same thing I did. <sighs> you think I'm going to church? You've got another thing coming. <laughs> and suddenly when we're a 
What about death? In over our heads? First thing we do is we we leave everybody alone. And we don't face the risk, the vulnerability, all that stuff. And God is telling us, no. When you have those issues, come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you for listening to our sermon of the week our desire is that you will be changed by the love of the father and the power of his presence for more information about house of hope visit us at www.ihope.today